Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's word, let's go before the throne of grace and ask his guidance and direction on our time of study today. Father, you have revealed your word to us, and you have overseen not only the inspiration of it and its uh, writing, but you have also overseen its preservation down through the centuries. Father, we're thankful for your word, that it is in your word that we see light. It is in your word that we understand truth, and it is in your word that we understand reality. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that we might be challenged in terms of our own uh, personal spiritual life to understand the central dynamics of, this, of the spiritual life and to understand once again the priority and the purpose of your word and how significant it is for us to be in your word on a daily basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One morning, a mother went in to wake up her son, who had seriously overslept, on a Sunday morning. And she woke him up and she said, son, you're oversleeping. You're going to be late for church this morning. He said, mom, I'm not going. What do you mean you're not going? He said, I'm not going. I'll give you two reasons I'm not going. Reason number one, those people there don't like me. Reason number two, I don't like them. I'm going back to sleep. So she said, I'm going to give you two reasons why you're going to get up right now and you're going to go to church. Reason number one is you're 59 years old. (laughs) Reason number two is you're the pastor. (laughs) Now, that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're teaching this morning, but I've always loved that joke and was recently reminded of it. (laughs) Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. Now, last week we looked at some uh, aspects related to this, uh, if I can find my mouse again, maybe, uh, oh, there it is, okay. We concluded with a couple of summary points on the spiritual renewal that was taking place in the kingdom of Judah under King Josiah. What led up to this, just for review and for those who were not here last week, is that when he was eight years old, young Josiah became the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, He was preceded by a a horrible year, year year-and-a-half reign of Ammon, who was 
just as evil as his father, Manasseh. Manasseh had introduced, reintroduced all of the horrible, uh, idolatrous religions that were manifest among the Canaanites uh, into the spiritual life of the southern kingdom of Judah. He brought in all of the worst uh, religions of the uh, Canaanites, of the Phoenicians, the worship of Baal, the worship of Asherah. He completely desecrated the temple of God uh, in Jerusalem, and he uh, did away with all of the wonderful reforms that his father, Hezekiah, had made. But when Josiah came to the throne, Josiah, though he was only eight years old, the scripture says that he had a focus on divine priorities, and even as a young boy, he began to institute some reforms in the southern kingdom of Judah. But this, these reforms did not shift into high gear until he was 18 years old when the book of the law was rediscovered within the temple. During the time of Manasseh, during the time of Ammon, the uh, Mosaic law had been forbidden. Uh, copies of the law had been destroyed. Anyone who had copies of the scripture uh, would be uh, killed, would be executed. Prophets were executed. Anyone who went against the idolatrous religions that were being uh, promoted by the administration of Manasseh uh, would be uh, tortured and would be executed. We know of at least one example of this went with the death of Isaiah the prophet that he was uh, sawn in two. And so we know this was one of the most uh, horrible periods and one of the darkest periods spiritually in the history of the southern kingdom. But it was that rediscovery of the law and especially a rediscovery of God's promise of punishment, uh, judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah for their idolatry that awakened the people. And the point that I was making last time in terms of application for the spiritual life in any dispensation or any era, always begins with the Word of God. Uh, when the Word of God is taught and understood, it is that teaching of the Word of God. It is the reality of the truth of God's Word and the thinking of people that is the primary change agent. Now, in the church age, of course, we know that that is not separ separated from the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. But we can think of many historical examples of this truth. One that stands out the most is the time of the Protestant Reformation. During the at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the early uh, 1500s, most uh, nominal Christians, those who uh, were aligned with the only church at that time, which was the Roman Catholic Church, had little, if any, not direct knowledge of Scripture. For one reason, during most of the period of time uh, prior to the 1500s, people did not have their own copies of Scripture. Uh, it was not available. They did not have printing. Printing was not invented until the mid 15th century. That was one of the uh, cultural change agents that led to the Protestant Reformation. Once they were able to print, the, mass print the scriptures so that it could be, uh, uh, so that individuals could have their own copy of scripture, then that was one factor that led to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the second factor was that under the Roman Catholic Church, uh, it was forbidden to translate the Latin Vulgate into the language of the people so that they could understand what the Scripture said. They went to 
uh, went to Mass, and they heard everything in Latin and had no idea what, what it meant. And then the scriptures were foreign to them because it was all in Latin and the people no longer uh, spoke Latin or under, understood Latin. And so the word of God was no longer accessible to people. When it became accessible through uh, translations that began uh, prior to the Reformation with various attempts under people like uh, John Wycliffe and his followers who were called the Lollards, as well as uh, followers of Jan Hus in Czechoslovakia and other areas, then as the word of God began to, came to be translated into the language of the people and was printed in, in, uh, in ways that people could have access to the word of God in their own language and understand it, this then began to change uh, changed theology, changed churches, and led to the Protestant Reformation. When Martin Luther, who was the one who uh, initiated the first great challenge to Roman Catholic theology in 1517, when he uh, nailed a list of disputation points, 95 theses they're usually referred to, these were disputation points. He nailed them to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and this was to indicate a call to a debate over the truth of these principles. And all those principles had to do with the works-based theology of the Roman, Roman Catholic Church. Uh, what led him to do that was his study of the Scripture, his study of Romans, his study of Galatians. It is the study, it's the knowledge of God's Word that is the primary change agent in the lives of people, only when you know the word of God, not just doctrines, abstract doctrines, not just theology, but when you know the word of God. This is why it is so important that people in their individual spiritual lives should be reading the Bible on a daily basis, on a regular basis. Sure, there are going to be things that you don't understand. If you get a good commentary set, such as the uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary, which is put out by uh, Dallas Seminary, that is uh, pretty good in most most places. You can look up some things and find answers to some of your questions. You have a good Bible dictionary. You can look up some things. You have a good set of Bible maps, usually in Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, or in the back of a good study Bible. You can uh, find simple answers to some of the basic questions that you might be asking as you read through the Scripture. But just like learning any, any other subject in life, when you begin to study it, you have a lot more questions than you have answers. And you have a lot more questions raised than you have answers. But that's how we learn. That's how we grow in any academic discipline, in any, the study of any subject. So you begin by reading the Bible. Set a goal that you're going to read through the Bible in a year. If you just read five chapters a day, then you will easily read through the entire Bible uh, within a year. Underline passages that uh, are significant to you, promises that are significant to you. Uh, make a, have a little notebook that where you can write and jot thoughts down and ideas down or our favorite scriptures down you, so you can go back and find them again. But it is only when people are in the Word that there can be a change. But unfortunately... Just because people are exposed to the Word or reading the Bible on a regular basis, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are positively responsive to it. We live in an era today that is, in, in a number of ways, the direct heir of those shifts that occurred uh, prior to the 19th 
uh, I mean prior to the 15th century, 16th century, and the Protestant Reformation. We live in a time when there is an access to the Bible and the Word of God that goes far beyond anything the Reformers ever imagined. People like William Tyndale would just be astonished at the access that everybody has to the Word of God today. Just just go out on, I would say go to your Christian bookstore, but most of the stuff there isn't worth reading. It's not good biblical material. It's mostly psychological, motivational material. But if you go to some good places on, on, on the Internet, such as ChristianBooks.com or some other places like that that have uh, a, you know, a lot of scholarly material on the Bible, you're just amazed at how much is available today. And then through computer programs and electronic books, we have access to almost everything that's been written and published since the uh, Protestant Reformation and, and even beyond that. Uh, we have access to literally hundreds of different translations of the Bible into everyday language. Many of them are very good. We have, we have access to study Bibles that are absolutely Excellent. We have access to some of the best Bible teaching uh, throughout the history of the uh, of the Christian Church via the internet. You can click on any number of uh, pastors who are teaching sound doctrine uh, via the internet and listen to MP3s, watch videos, do all kinds of things. And yet, our culture is one of the most perverted and depraved cultures in all of history, and it's getting worse. And I think this is a sign of judgment on this nation and on Western civilization that the more access our culture has to the Word of God, the more spirit, the more biblically ignorant and illiterate, not just the culture, but the church is. People in congregations and churches that believe that they are biblical, that emphasize Bible study. Yes, we have Bible study. And I, I always laugh about this because you go to any number of churches, yes, we have Bible study. We have this Bible study, that Bible study, home Bible studies, all kinds of different Bible studies. And usually, from my experience as a pastor and as an individual who's visited churches and gone to some of these, these are pretty, unfortunately, they're pretty shallow and they're pretty superficial. And sometimes they just are, are just barely uh, uh, a notch better than a sort of a Christian uh, self-help group. And it's, it's really, it's really tragic. And I've heard and seen this for, for 30 years as a pastor. I see people who say, I want to go to a church where there's good Bible teaching. And then they go to a church where there's good Bible teaching. You know, my church, they come and visit uh, a church where, where I teach or I've heard this from other pastors who are similar. And these people will last maybe one visit or maybe two, and they say, oh, I just can't understand that. That's just way over my head. I, I mean, I, I just, I need to go back to what I think of as Bible study. What they think of as Bible study has no more to do with Bible study than it has to do with algebra. It's just, it just, it's so superficial and shallow and psychological. People don't get into the Word. And I remember one time when I, read a quote. This was in my first church, probably about 1981 or 82, and I read, a, it was a little bit of a lengthy quote from a Puritan work from the uh, 17th century. And, it was, and I read it in order to illustrate the point that the study of God's Word was a lot more complex and a lot more sophisticated 
and has always been treated that way by by uh, good pastors than what a lot of people in the pew want to think. And I had people who came up and said, I can't believe anybody ever understood that. You know, in, in, in 17th century Massachusetts, the town with the, with the um, lowest rate, uh, lowest percentage of those who could, could read had uh, o- only 2 to 3% of the population could not read. They would have 96, 97% of the population could read. Today, you know, we're a long way from that. They were motivated to learn how to read because ultimately they needed to read the Word of God. And they needed to know what God had to say to them. And so parents and uh, the local communities emphasized the ability to read so that everyone could ultimately read the Bible. Once you lose that motivation and there's no longer a spiritual motivation to learn how to read, then it becomes simply you know, need to read so that you can make money. And that just isn't quite the have the eternal perspective and uh, motivating factor that uh, your eternal destiny has. So uh, we have a much lower uh, rate of uh, reading ability today than they had in, at that time. But everybody could read, and they could read well, and they had great vocabularies, and they had a great education system. And so the pastors taught uh, the Word of God in depth, and everybody understood it. And that's really convicting because people today don't have the education to go back and read those sermons and understand what they said. They can't understand it because, A, they don't have the biblical literacy to understand it, and, B, they can't understand it because they don't have the education background, the vocabulary, et cetera, uh, to understand it. It's not that the preachers then were teaching over people's heads. It's that the people at that time had an understanding and appreciation uh, for the Bible and for education. So the first principle is the Word of God is taught and understood, and that is the primary change agent. Second, the people have a choice to obey or to disobey. When you hear the word of God, you have a choice. You make a decision in your head whether or not you are going to take this seriously and apply the principles in your thinking and in your life or not. And so ultimately the responsibility is on you. It's not on the pastor. It's not on the Sunday school teachers. It's not on prep school teachers. It's not on the, on the deacons. It is on what you plan to do and what you intend to do with the word. And then third, when you choose to obey... Obedience means action. Now, that action may be a mental action or it may be an overt action. Uh, Many times it involves both. We have to change our thinking, which leads to a change change of of action. And that's what we see in uh, this uh, remaining section of 2 Kings chapter 23 is the action plan that uh, Josiah in Acts in order to implement the changes that are demanded by the Word of God as he read the Word of God. And so we learn a principle here in terms of application for our spiritual life, and that is that as we go through these, these, uh, these points and the, the way in which he enacts the law, we learn that as believers, when it comes to application, we begin with the most obvious and overt contradictions that we see in our thinking and in our life to the Word of God, and then we move out from there. You start with the most obvious, we, you start with the most central aspects, and then you move out from there. I started off last time 
by looking at uh, the New Testament principles of Romans 12, 1 and 2. I want to focus just on the second verse to remind you of this. This is the, I think this is the primary uh, marching order uh, for the primary mission statement for the believer's spiritual life. Do not be conformed to this world. That means do not be pressed into the mold of the thought systems of the culture around you. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, which has to do with a metamorphosis, a complete transformation. Be transformed by the renovation, the renewing, the overhaul of your thinking, of your thought systems. It's not just what you think, but how you think. That you may prove, and the word here translated prove means to give evidence or to exemplify something positive, a positive demonstration of something that you may prove what, that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect, or in the sense of, of complete. So th- this principle is what we see enacted in uh, the time of Josiah. He recognizes that uh, it is the world system of that day that has pressed and conformed the uh, people of Judah into the mold of the pagan religions of the nations and cultures around them. And so in order for them to be transformed, there has to be a change in thinking and a change in action. So this begins, first of all, we see this in uh, verse uh, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priest of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out, out of the temple of the Lord, all the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all of the host of heaven. Now, in that decision, what they're starting with the temple at the center of Jerusalem. And so the first four actions that we see taking place in this action plan start at the very center of the spiritual life of the nation Israel. The point of application is that when you and I get serious about the Lord in our life, we have to start at the center of our, of our thinking. And that relates ultimately to our thinking about reality, who God is, and what God has done and provided for us, especially in the plan of salvation. So for them, that, re- that meant that they had to cleanse the temple. They had to take the idols that had been put in there by Manasseh and by Ammon out. They had to remove the idols to Baal. There was a huge uh, post in there that was an, for the Asherah. This was the female uh, consort of Baal. And all of this involved a, a lot of perverted sexual uh, rituals that were part of the fertility cult of the worship of uh, Baal and Asherah and the others. And the host of heaven referred to uh, the uh, astral deities who are often associated with planets and stars. The picture there is a, an archaeological artifact showing the identification of, ver- of the gods with various uh, astrological uh, or astronomical bodies. Uh, here is a depiction of the Asherah. There was this large Asherah pole uh, in the, uh, that had been put into the temple of God in Jerusalem. So all of this needed 
uh, needed to be removed. So the first thing that happened was they removed this physical action. It's not just sitting back and saying, okay, we're going to obey God, but that that resulted in action. They removed all the idolatrous articles uh, from the temple, burned them in the fields of Kidron, that's the valley that uh, uh, runs to the east of the Temple Mount, between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives, and then they carried the ashes to Bethel. Now, the reason they carried the ashes to Bethel is that Beth- Bethel is not in the kingdom of Judah. It's right it's just to the northern border. It was the southernmost part of the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, which, of course, had already been destroyed. So they are removing this from their domain. There is a removal of these overt uh, indications of sin and, and rebellion against God that is physically removed from their presence. The second thing that happened is that he stopped the actions of the idolatrous priests whom the king of Judah, kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense to Baal, to the sun, moon, and the constellations. And these priests had been allowed to operate since the time of Solomon. Even though there had been various reforms that had taken place at different times, they were never carried through to the same extent that Josiah uh, uh, carried them out. He removes these priests completely. That had never happened before, even under, apparently, even under uh, Hezekiah. Uh, this is seen in 2 Kings uh, 23, verse 5. Then he removed, literally, the Hebrew word means he caused to cease. He caused the idolatrous priests to cease functioning. Uh, these are the priests that the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense uh, to all of these uh, idols and false gods. The Hebrew word that's used here for the pagan priests is an interesting word. It's the word kemarim, and it's used uh, elsewhere in the Bible in Hosea chapter 10, verse 5, and in Zephaniah uh, 1, 4, and it refers specifically to uh, priests who are prostrating themselves before idols. It is not a word that is used of the priests of Israel, but it refers specifically to idolatrous priests. The third thing that he did was he removed the wooden image, the Asherah pole, uh, from inside the temple. He removed it to the brook Kidron, burned it, ground it to ashes, and then scattered the ashes on the grounds of the common, uh, on the graves of the common people. This is in verse 6. He brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the book Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the book Brook Kidron, and ground it to ashes, and threw its ashes on the graves of the, of the common people. I'm not exactly sure what the significance of that action, uh, what that action was. It may have been uh, simply a way of expressing uh, his uh, contempt for the uh, for the gods, because the graves would be considered uh, unclean. The Kidron Valley is seen in this particular picture. The gold dome, of course, gives us a focal point on the right. That's the uh, dome of the rock that is on the Temple Mount. You see that to the left there is a ridge line uh, that then, then circles a little bit to the south. We're looking down the Kidron Valley uh, to the south. The valley uh, between the wall on the Temple Mount to the right 
and the Mount of Olives to the left is the Kidron Valley as it makes a turn to the right on the uh, south side of the Temple Mount. You see the ridge line above it, and that we'll see a reference to in a minute, is also referred to as the Mount of Corruption uh, or the Mount of Desecration. This is where at the time of Solomon, Solomon erected idols to Chemosh, to also known as Moloch, and uh, also uh, other idols and instituted idolatrous worship uh, there. So it is in this valley of Kidron. Incidentally, today, uh, to up to the, as you get towards that uh, southern end of the, of the temple mount of the, of the wall there, where you see, see the corner, uh, directly across the uh, Kidron from there, you have a huge cemetery today um, that is, uh, that, that's covered. So apparently this area has been used as a burial site uh, for, uh, for the Jewish people for uh, centuries down, way deep into the Old Testament period. Fourth, he tore down the ritual booze of the perverted people. Now, these ritual booths were little temporary uh, lean-to type things or tents that were set up all throughout the temple precinct where the temple prostitutes would ply their trade. So if you were a man and a woman and you were coming in to worship these sexual deities, then you would purchase a, a prostitute, either a male prostitute or a female prostitute, and then you would engage in sexual acts inside of those tents uh, from homosexuality to heterosexuality, and this then was supposed to inspire the gods uh, to make you prosperous and fertile in your business, in your uh, agricultural endeavors, or, or whatever it might be. So there is a complete removal of these ritual booths where the uh, these practices were, were carried on. Uh, the worship of Baal and Asher was just some of the most degraded type of activity in all of the, all of the history of mankind, and usually uh, those actions are not, uh, not pl- uh, described uh, very much, which you can uh, probably understand. Fifth, after cleansing the temple area at the very center, then he begins to move out into other areas in the southern kingdom of Judah. So the next thing that he does under point five, he brought all of the priests. These are the Levitical priests. He brings all the priests from the cities of Judah, uh, even at, and then he defiled the high places. These are all of the uh, different uh, worship centers that have been set up for all of these false gods. He defiled the high places from Geba to Beersheba, and he broke down the high places. Now, here is a map of Judah. The area that I have circled there is the village of Geba, which is located towards the northern uh, border of the kingdom of Judah. And then down at the extreme lower left, you can just see a little dot there and a can't read the word, that's Beersheba. So this describes from the northern border of Judah to the southern border of Judah uh, everything that was related to idolatrous worship was completely destroyed and completely removed. Including that, he destroyed the high places at the city gates, at the entrance to all of the cities uh, were the city gates, and this is typically where uh, the city council would meet, where the mayor would meet, where judges would meet, where courts were held, 
uh, in this location. So what the, what the city gates refers to is the government operation centers in each of the uh, local towns and cities. And so because they were, uh, they, they wanted to please the gods, they had altars uh, set up there uh, where the city councils met. And so this indicated that the whole city was devoting itself to the various false gods. So those are all, all destroyed. Uh, seventh, we're told that he defied the, he defied the place where the child sacrifices were made. Uh, he de, Topheth is the area that is uh, associated with Gehenna, which is the valley that also that runs into the Kidron uh, from the uh, from the west, and this is where they would set up idols to Moloch or Chemosh. They're different names for the same uh, deity, and I have a picture of one coming up. But it was a stone idol, and they would build an enormous fire in his belly. His arms would be outstretched, and then they would bring their children, their infants, their babies, and they would place them into the arms of Moloch to be consumed by the fire. And this was to placate the gods so that they could uh, be prosperous. So they were sacrificing their children. They were sacrificing their families uh, so that they could be prosperous and so that they could be wealthy. Uh, this is one of the most extreme forms of just prosperity worship uh, that we've ever had in human history. We do the same thing today. It's just not as overt. But people today sacrifice their family, sacrifice their children in many other ways uh, so that they can be a financial success and so that they can achieve social status and many other things. And the result is that uh, their children uh, are victimized and destroyed in many ways uh, by the uh, actions of the parents. Eighth thing that he did, he removed the ornamental horses that were dedicated to the worship of the sun along with the chariots. So these ornamental horses are depicted here. This is an archaeological find of, a, of one of these stone horses. They had a number of these uh, also connected with chariots. Uh, chariots were used to depict uh, the travel of the sun. You have the same kind of thing in uh, Greek mythology where Apollo, uh, who was the sun god, would uh, uh, traverse the heavens in his chariot. And so these horses and the chariots were associated with the worship uh, of the sun. And then uh, ninth, we, it's, it's, uh, verse 11 states that he also burned the chariots of the sun. There we read in verse 11, Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Natan Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun uh, with fire. Uh, the next thing that he did, uh, point number 10, the tenth thing that he did, he destroyed the rooftop altars used to worship these astrological deities. Let's get up on the rooftop so we're a little bit closer to the stars and the, and the gods, uh, and then we will, we will worship them. And in verse uh, 12, we read that these were built by Ahaz, uh, the father of uh, Hezekiah, who had also led the nation into rank uh, paganism, uh, as well as Manasseh. So they're described as altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, 
uh, which the kings of Judah had made and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So Manasseh constructed his within the temple itself. So these were broken down and completely destroyed. The, the material, building material was pulverized and scattered into the brook uh, Kedron. And then 11th, we're told that Josiah then destroyed the altars to Chemosh and Milcom on the Mount of Corruption. This is described in Second uh, Kings chapter 23, 13, and 14. And here I have a uh, picture of, uh, of the idol, artist rendition of the idol to Moloch. And here is a map of, uh, of the uh, area of Jerusalem and the city of David. And you see that the Mount of Olives is the ridge that runs along to the east, uh, the right-hand side of the chart, and the lo- lower right-hand corner is the area that was called the Mount of Corruption. doesn't look a whole lot better today. This is looking at the Mount of Corruption from the city of David, the area in the lower part where the springs of Gihon are located, and, um, and this is a, uh, an Arab uh, settlement in, uh, within Jerusalem and East Jerusalem that is on the uh, Mount of Corruption, and it uh, seems to be just as corrupt today as it ever was. Twelfth. Josiah destroyed the uh, destroyed the altar at Bethel, so he's moving out. Uh, he's cleaned up Judah. Now he's moving north. He's moving out of his specific territory. Remember, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722, about 90 to 100 years prior to what Josiah is doing. This territory is under the control of a governor from Assyria. But uh, even though it's governed by a foreign power, nevertheless, Josiah go- recognizes it is still the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, he, was, he had a right to cleanse the land of idolatry, even though it wasn't under the political control of the southern kingdom of Judah. What's the application from that? The application is that the Old Testament recognizes that it doesn't matter who has political control over the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is still the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it still needed to be uh, cleansed uh, no matter who the political power was that dominated it or controlled it at that particular time. Uh, Bethel was in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, and then Dan was in the extreme north. These were the two areas where um, the idols had been set up by um, uh, the kings in the in the northern kingdom of Israel uh, for the worship of God. They had set up the, the uh, golden calves there, and they were worshipped. So he's beginning the cleansing there in the north, and he is going to extend that throughout the uh, northern kingdom or what had been uh, the northern kingdom of, of uh, Israel. So the 13th point is that he removed all of the shrines, all of the idolatrous worship sites in the north. And this is described in verse 16, uh, or excuse me, verse 19. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. 
and he did to them according to all the deeds he had done in Bethel. Fourteenth, he executed all of the false priests in the north. This wasn't even under his political control, but he understood what his spiritual responsibility was under the Mosaic law, and that was to execute anyone who led the nation into idolatry, anyone who claimed to be a spokesperson for God, a prophet for God, who wasn't a prophet for God, and so he is cleansing the nation. This took, uh, think about the time period for all this action. It takes time to when we have been enmeshed in sin, the cleansing, the actual action of cleansing, not confession-type cleansing, uh, the practical aspect takes time. It takes time to grow. It takes time to advance. It takes time to root out all of the garbage that's in your soul and all of the false ideas and false teaching uh, that you have in the soul, but the idea is that it needs to be removed completely, totally, and absolutely destroyed. It's not something we go back and play with. It is something that you execute and remove. Fifteenth, uh, we see that after he had finished the cleansing of the nation, he then returned to Jerusalem, and he called for an observance of the Passover. Just as in the observance of the Passover, which is the first day of the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, just as there is a removal, a symbolic removal of leaven from the house prior to the worship of Passover, which depicts the removal of sin from the life of the person who's going to worship God, he has physically cleansed the nation now of idolatry so that it is prepared to come and uh, worship at the Passover. Uh, This was one of the greatest Passover observances uh, in the ancient world. Nothing like this had been seen since Solomon dedicated uh, the temple. If we look at examples over in uh, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 35, where it gives us much more detail on um, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, where we see the observance of that Passover, we see that he uh, sacrificed 37,600 sheep, and if your one sheep was for an average of 10 people in a family or family group, then that would indicate around 376,000 people in Jerusalem. Furthermore, 37,600 sheep would produce uh, a little over a gallon of blood, and if you add all of that up, uh, you would have about 40,000, a little more than 40,000 gallons of blood and over 315,000 gallons of GI contents, gastrointestinal contents. I like to get down to the nitty-gritty here (laughs) because it helps us to understand this isn't just some antiseptic process here. This isn't just one priest up there killing three or four animals. If any of you have ever been deer hunting or ever hunted and you've uh, butchered, cleansed, skinned an animal, you know how much work is involved. This was a well-organized, sophisticated process. Uh, today we have hunting knives that they make with extremely uh, sophisticated steels that once they are sharpened, you can use those to uh, to to. Uh, process as many as 16 or 20 uh, animals, depending on the kind of animal that you're processing. Think about the kinds of tools, sharpening tools, uh, cutting tools, slicing tools that they had available to them in the ancient world. You had to organize all of your, uh, a whole section of Levitical priests, and their, their job was simply to sharpen the knives. 
and to keep them sharp. Then you had another detail who was responsible for skinning and another one responsible for uh, butchering. And then there's all of this blood. What do you do with all of this blood? Why, why is it so bloody? And it is to remind the people of the horrors of sin and all of the, uh, and the sacrificing of all of these animals. It is simply to remind the people that sin is something that is horrible and it has to be paid for in a way that is horrible. Now, this doesn't actually pay for their sin. It is the ritual cleansing, but it depicts the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that fulfills or completes uh, what these uh, sacrifices foreshadowed. Uh, there were 3,800 bulls that were sacrificed, and if you uh, average out the uh, an average amount of blood in a bull is a little more than 10 gallons. You had another 41,000 gallons of uh, bull blood uh, and about 50 gallons per bull of gastrointestinal contents, so you had about 190,000 gallons of gastrointestinal contents. And this all has to be taken care of. It takes a tremendous amount of water to do that. So they were bringing water in via various aqueducts that had been built to bring water in from springs from the north as well as, uh, as, well as from the south. So this was a tremendous time uh, in the history of this nation. They had to be, it, it had to be organized. It, had to be, it was sophisticated. And it was all related to their spiritual life. So what do we learn from all of this? Well, we learn that when, and the same principle applies to us, that in our spiritual life, when we become honest and serious with the Word of God, that it demands a change. It's not just an overt change, it's a change that starts with our thinking. Romans 12.2, we renovate, overhaul the thinking in our soul. And that only occurs because under the, today, under the power of God, uh, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to apply those principles on a regular basis. We start with the most obvious uh, areas in our life, and we start with the core issues, which has to do with our view of ultimate reality. That's why the whole doctrine related to creation and evolution is so important. The God who uses evolution as a process for creation is a God who uses death and suffering as his normal modus operandi to bring about uh, advance. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says that death is abnormal. Death is the result of sin. Death only came into the creation as a result of Adam's uh, original sin, and death needs to be dealt with so that, uh, so that man can have eternal life. And so that penalty for sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross so that we can have eternal life. And that life begins the moment you're saved. It is not a life that is simply eternal in terms of its length, but it is uh, eternal in terms of its dimensions. And so we have to begin to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ from the instant that we are saved. And that means learning the word and applying it in our lives. Now, in terms of the conclusion with Josiah, what happens is that God has promised him that he will not go through the judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah that God had promised. He, he, he said, their evil is so great that I cannot uh, turn my back on it, and I will have to remove them from the land as I promised in Leviticus chapter 26. So at the end of his reign, there is a uh, major war that breaks out between the Assyrians and the Egyptians, and Pharaoh Necho heads north, 
uh, through uh, Israel, through Judah and Israel, to go to uh, uh, Carchemish, which is located here in the north at the end of the Euphrates River up in modern Syria, uh, where he is going to do battle uh, with the uh, where he's going to do battle with the Assyrians. And, uh, but Josiah engages him in battle at Megiddo, which is, uh, located here on the, uh, edge of the valley, valley of, uh, uh, Ezralon, otherwise known as, uh, Megiddo is otherwise known as Ar- Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, uh, which is where we get our word Armageddon. And this is where Josiah is killed in battle. And we are told at the conclusion of his life in verse 28, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went against him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo uh, when he confronted him. Then his servants moved his body in a chariot from uh, Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land then took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him, and made him king in his father's place. And from this point on, we are on a downhill trajectory uh, in terms of the spiritual life of the southern kingdom. The people do not maintain their loyalty to God. They follow the uh, horrible uh, evil leadership of the sons of, of Josiah, and the end result is going to be the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah, which we'll get to uh, when we come to chapter uh, chapter 25. If people exercise their volition positively towards God, then there is positive growth in a nation and in a culture. But if they reject the word of God, either individually or as a nation, then there is destruction destruction to the individual, destruction to the nation, and they become a culture of death rather than a culture of life. So as, Josiah, as, uh, as Joshua said, as the Israelites had entered into the land, he said, now it is up to you to either choose life or death. Life is defined in Scripture. Death is when you reject Scripture. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to focus on these principles in your word, to recognize that um, it's not just enough to be positionally cleansed of sin, but we are to grow and advance spiritually. Growing and advancing spiritually means learning your word uh, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, applying it in our lives, uh, changing so that we move from disobedience to obedience, and that only when we are walking with you is there going to be a blessing in our lives and true a spiritual prosperity in our life and in our soul. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their uh, eternal destiny, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. This is your opportunity to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was the uh, ultimate reality depicted by the Passover lamb, depicted by the sacrifices at the Passover under Josiah because it is only in his uh, impeccable uh, body that, that as he hung on the cross that the sins of the world were poured out, imputed to him, so that they were truly paid for. And all we must do is to believe in him, to trust in him for eternal life, and we will have eternal salvation that can never be taken from us and we can never lose. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we studied this morning. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.